This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. There is something scarier than having a serious food allergy. Looking after a child who has one and keeping a barrier between them and any accidental exposure leaves you in a state of constant anxiety and it's exhausting. Food Allergy Awareness Week focuses on prevention and better treatment. And our guest on Buddy Lab today has more skin in the game than she originally imagined. Associate Professor Severin Navarro just co-led a study finding a new culprit for shellfish allergy that could lead to improved diagnostic testing of this potentially life-threatening reaction. Thank you for joining us, Severin. Thanks, Claire. My pleasure. It's so good to have you along here and dispel a few allergy myths, but let's get right to the heart of it. Along with your colleagues at JCU, you've given people with shellfish allergy a big heads up, just published. What did you find? Well, the trick about allergy is all this cross-reactivity. So that means that you are allergic to something because of the similarity between that particular allergen and others, you will be allergic to a food group that you really didn't suspect you might be allergic to. There is a very strong similarity between crustaceans, prawns, crayfish, lobster, and mollusks, abalone, oysters, but even some distant cousins like octopus or your squid. It's always been thought that prawn was the initial allergen responsible for making you allergic to shellfish. But what we found is other species, particularly that of mollusks, it's called the primary sensitizer, the first initial exposure that will make you allergic. Then you could become allergic to shrimp and prawns and all your other crayfish and lobsters. This is a critical finding. It's unsuspected. It's believed that maybe mollusks are less allergenic than prawns and all your other crustaceans, but it's not the case. They're as or equally potent. How is this discovered? Is it something you have from birth or you develop it? Allergies are very insidious. It could be either. What is normally identified for allergy is called the atopic march. Often it develops around the neonatal period. And very interesting work has arisen in the last decade that directly linked the microbiome and allergy onset. And usually under the atopic march, it starts with skin allergy, eczema, hives, and eventually develops to either respiratory symptoms, rhinitis, and then it leads to asthma, or it can go into food allergy. Some food allergy you will have during childhood and you will be able to outgrow them. Others, and it depends on the allergen or the severity of the disease, you might keep all your life. You might just have mild symptoms or you might actually develop anaphylaxis and have that uh, life-threatening condition. Some other type of allergies you would develop later in life as an adult. It might just catch you off guard because it's not something that you ever were allergic to and boom, you develop anaphylaxis one day after eating a plate of oysters. And then you may also have allergies that develop in much later age in the geriatric population. And all these different allergic endotypes, they have uh, different characteristics to their disease. They're not equally the same, but they all have very dangerous consequences for the patient. When you say develop, does that mean it has some sort of accumulative effect? 
You can have both. This is why it's so scary. You can have the cumulative effect and eventually you will get the symptoms. It could start with something very, very innocuous, a little bit of skin irritation or just something that you would brush off and don't really attribute to food allergy. And it will build up and then you will get the symptoms where you, you can deny it that you have to go and investigate further. But for some other people, uh, when it develops, particularly later in life, you wouldn't necessarily suspect that you're building an allergic reaction to something until it really hits you hard. There are some differences between allergens, and some are more potent than others. Some are found naturally, like all your, your food allergy, your pollens, but others now can be developed against medicine, like antibiotics or other drugs. And these can be trickiest to diagnose, but they usually would hit you much harder and much faster. And more dangerously, where they would send you in the ER uh, or in the ED here, sorry, in Australia. Let's talk about the antibiotic one for a sec, because you're not quite sure whether it's the antibiotic itself. It, it could be from the formulation of the antibiotics themselves. To make a drug, you need, obviously, the main active compound, but then you need other things added to it to make it more stable, to make it more potent, to make it being delivered orally versus intravenously or in the muscle. All these added chemicals you could develop an allergic reaction to, or it could be to the antibiotic themselves, like penicillin, for example. But there's another aspect of antibiotics that's very important. Antibiotics are meant to wipe out bacteria. We live with trillions of bacteria in a symbiotic relationship, and that's what we call the microbiome. The microbiome is important for your skin, for your gut, for all your mucosal sites, your airways, and they have absolutely pivotal and essential function in working very closely with your immune system to keep you healthy. If you disturb these bacteria, and that's what antibiotics will do, you might have a greater risk at becoming allergic. It probably wouldn't take just a one-time event, but a series of events. Sometimes you are more likely to be given antibiotics for another condition, something that's recurrent. Then you're becoming more at risk of developing secondary health issues such as allergies. Just getting back to your findings, you also included some dust mites in the shellfish, the prawns. Well, this is what's fascinating about allergies. If you look at the evolution of species, we all have common ancestors. And it turns out that crustaceans all have a common ancestor with insects. You wouldn't imagine that something that lives in the ocean and something that lives on Earth have any sort of commonality. But the reality is insects like dust mites, house dust mites, spiders and scorpions have a common ancestry to crustaceans. They're all part of the same crustacean classification. They have certain proteins that they express, particularly on their shell, that is common to your prawn, your crayfish, your lobster, all these yummy things that if you are sensitive to prawn, well, you may very well be sensitive to house dust mite. It comes with repetitive exposure. Right. And if you build this repetition of exposure to house dust mite, then you may be more likely to develop an allergy to prawn and crayfish and lobster. And any family meal or celebratory meal like for Christmas might actually be life-threatening to you. How does it manifest itself? 
often the first symptom is actually hives and uh, that redness, that eczema and that itching. It builds up over time to the point where you might have more violent symptoms like vomiting or even constriction of the airways, the swelling and that anaphylactic shock. If you inhale dust mites, the reaction would be called into the airways, of course, the lung. Uh, you might also have that cross sensitivity where you would build up that swelling and that compromised breathing. The bottom line, I think, and this is some of the findings of the paper that we've recently published, it's about awareness. It's about knowing the similarities between allergens and between species that you might consume, such as the prawn, the crayfish and the oysters, but also the fact that they're closely related to your abalone, your even your snails, your octopus. And it's about being aware of maybe if you're allergic to prawn, you should watch out when you consume mollusks, you know, like your snail if you're French, like me, <laughs> or if you're going to have abalone or octopus or squid, you need to be aware that you might develop symptoms and it might lead you to anaphylaxis and you might just want to avoid those. If you're also sensitive to your prawn, well, maybe you want to have these house dust mite free or as free as you can get bedding and pillow or wash your sheets more often because that repetitive exposure might lead you to more harm than good. It's just that awareness of things. This is fantastic information. Will it help with diagnostic and testing? Now that we are more aware of these other closely related species and the fact that mollusks can be primary sensitizer, which means that they were the species that you were first exposed to and that made you allergic to. We can then incorporate those into the diagnostic strategy, which usually is skin prick or blood testing. And often you would find that you come back with a negative on your shellfish allergy, but it's not that you're not allergic. It's just that these responsible proteins from these cousin um, shellfish species were not incorporated into the diagnostic process itself. But in the future, that can be included. That would be our hope, yes. I don't know whether the seafood industry will thank you for this research, Severin. I don't think so. <laughs> People that actually work in the seafood industry, they have occupational exposure and they handle these species between bony fish, uh, crayfish, um, that constant exposure at mm. home to mites and potentially spiders and scorpions, depending on where they live. This is just that constant exposure. If you just hit the right condition, then you might develop an allergic reaction to it. And it could catch you by surprise as well. You may not even have any family history of allergy. And then eventually after two or three years, you start to have that skin irritation. And you might not think it's exposure to, you know, shellfish at work. And it could also be aerosolized. The route of exposure may not be through the skin. It may actually be inhaled, but you would still become exposed and eventually sensitized and you could develop allergy. There's a lot of talk about desensitizing people to their allergies and exposing them to small amounts. Would this not apply? Desensitization protocols are done in a very specific manner, in a very targeted way. It doesn't really translate to this occupational exposure because you don't control the dose, you don't control the species or the particular allergen that you're sensitized against. You can't do that yourself. That's the bottom line. 
the sad thing in this is that food allergy is the hardest allergen to be desensitized against, often because, of course, you have the risk of anaphylaxis, but mostly because it's a very potent route and very strong triggers of the immune system and the immune response. There are other factors that you want to bring in the equation, and some have not yet been developed or they're not yet on the market for patients to access. One thing I didn't understand is the severity of your reaction to your allergy might not be the same every time. Usually you, you lower a threshold every time you become exposed, but then there are other events that can come into play. Let's say you are uh, a little bit immune suppressed, uh, you just recently got sick, your immune system is just rebuilding, you get exposed to that allergen, it might be enough for your immune regulatory response to be a bit underwhelmed, a bit overwhelmed, sorry, and not being able to respond accordingly to th- that allergen that you're getting exposed to. It could come from a number of reasons, but anything that can lower your immune response by raised inflammation sets a better environmental condition for allergic responses to grow more severely or even initiate for the first time. Things that can compromise your your immune response linked to inflammation can be from infection, but it could also be from mental illnesses that raise your inflammatory status and then that compromises your ability to respond to other immune reactions. So now you have a better idea of what's involved. How could this impact the treatment in the future? Maybe it's about counterbalancing that immune response to be more tolerogenic, more tolerant, more able to develop that desensitizing response rather than go into anaphylactic shock. So essentially it's playing with the response threshold to raise it enough where we can build that regulatory response. And this we can do by manipulating the immune system. And that goes with specific immunotherapy uh, that we're developing in our group that promotes that tolerance that raises that threshold where we can now have that window where we can desensitize against a food allergy. How would that look as a medication? Something you would just take orally. Something simple. You'd been working on this for years and you had a child who had allergies. She's a lucky one who grew out of it. That's right. It got us by surprise because we don't have family history of allergy and even less food allergy. And I thought I took all the right precautions when I was pregnant. I breastfed her. I ate just about everything that I could think of, uh, things that hopefully uh, would have helped her. And sure enough, a plate of lasagna with eggplant later. And she started to develop hives quite severely with swollen lips just after a couple of bites of the dish. A scary moment, I must say, because that was me stepping into a world that I knew in theory, but not as a parent. How different was that? Terrifying, I must say. Terrifying because, granted, we were lucky enough that it was eggplant. Eggplant is easy to avoid. But my eldest daughter had a friend from school who was allergic to dairy. That means all your milk and your cheese. And it's something that are usually incorporated into the lunchbox. Just the thought of the parents and this poor child going to school, being accidentally exposed to cheese or being harassed by another child, not understanding the severity of that condition, touching her with a piece of cheese, that would send her into shock and straight, of course, into the emergency and getting all the protocol 
It's no way to live. And I know some of those children, and milk can touch their skin and it's like a third degree burn. Exactly. No, no, it's absolutely terrifying. And like I said, depending on the severity of allergy, you may be able to outgrow it. Usually dairy and egg is one that is the easiest to outgrow. But again, for that particular child with the severe allergy, it's more unlikely because of the degree of disease that she's developed. The ones that you don't outgrow? Yeah, often nut, tree nuts, shellfish are some of the ones that you really don't outgrow, often because they're associated with a more severe response when exposed to them. I know your goal is to get something that you can give an infant that would stop them from developing these really serious anaphylactic allergies. Yeah, that's our goal. It all spans from several years of research, but from myself, of course, but from the broader scientific community. So we found that the microbiome of newborns is essentially that very critical period where it establishes and it develops and it's getting exposed to all these environmental factors, breast milk, pollens, pollution, dust mites, etc. And of course, all the food and nutrients that will go through the breast milk from the mother. And so this is a very critical period where if you do have an imbalance of that microbiome, this is where you are more likely to develop an allergic sensitization. Allergies develop and evolve over time and can become increasingly severe. We just thought that if we intervene during that period and could balance the microbiome and also balance that immune system, where instead of becoming more reactive to allergen, maybe we could make it more tolerant to allergen. We have found a particular compound that we can give orally to newborns during that period. So not newborn humans, but that's all experimental in the lab. We can treat these newborns with that particular compound and it will prevent the development of allergy. So we've tested it for asthma and it works absolutely amazingly. And we're really hoping to bring this to the market accessible to the public, whether they have a family history of allergy or not. If it were me, I'd use it. It's just something like a little food supplement. And I would know that I'm helping my child regulate its immune system better and prevent sensitization. So we're not sure whether we can develop this for food allergy. This is what we're looking at now because the food allergy reaction is so much more potent and stronger than asthma or rhinitis. But we're hoping that we can at least increase that threshold already so there wouldn't be severe disease. So that's something that potentially can be outgrown and potentially that can be easier to treat with desensitization immunotherapy. And to get there, you need funding. Absolutely. And you know what COVID research taught us is that in a short amount of time, with a lot of money, we can bring treatments and vaccines in such a short period of time to the public. And it was not because bridges have been burnt or any, it has not been the case at all. The scientific process has been followed diligently from the beginning to the time that we received these vaccines or the, now these new antiviral therapies. But the reality is it took a lot of money. It took a lot of effort. The reason why other medications don't make it to the public as quick as it was for COVID is because we don't get the funding. And we have to work with little bit and little bit and little bit. And these take years to get to the point where we need to be. Analogy is, is a major 
issue because right now it affects between 2.5% of the population of children and adults as well. If you talk about allergy in a general sense between rhinitis, skin allergy, asthma, and then of course your food allergy, you're jumping from 20 to 30% of the population. There is yet very little treatment option. There's no cure for it. We need to bring these new treatments, and especially if you're looking at preventing the disease rather than treating it, I think this is something that should be looked at. It's serious and it's deadly, and people live near a hospital because their kids have asthma. That is no way to do life. Absolutely. If you'd like to donate to Associate Professor Severin Navarro and her team's great work, find out more about what they're doing. QIMRBurghofer.edu.au. Thanks, Severin. Thank you so much, Claire.